Let us pray together. Father, once more as we come to look upon your word of truth, we ask again that you will open our eyes that we may truly see who you are, that you will open our ears that we may hear and understand the word of your truth, and that you will open our hearts that we might receive that word to go from this place to be those who obey, to have the obedience of faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We are continuing our series, uh, running through uh, the book of Romans. We're taking a sweep through it. We're not looking at it in detail, but trying to trace Paul's argument as he lays out the gospel for us. Um, So we've come now to Romans chapter 4, where Paul begins to talk about faith. Uh, We looked at the course last time, how we uh, are made righteous. Now we look at how that takes place by faith. So beginning at chapter 3, verse 27, then reading the whole of chapter 4. That's page 1131. Chapter 3, verse 27 is where we start. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an, as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God and who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. Is this blessedness for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And we received, and and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham our father had before he was circumcised. It was not through law 
that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said of him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now let me begin with a question this morning. What is faith? How would you answer that? After all, it's one of those words, it's one of those concepts that Christians use all the time. Indeed, I presume not a sermon would go by without a mention of the word at some point. You see, faith is one of those slippery little words that we often assume we understand, but when we're asked to really write it down on paper what it actually means, it's more difficult than we imagined. Part of the issue, I think, for us is that faith has become one of those words that can mean many different things. It all depends on those Though the person who's hearing it. For some, to talk of faith is to talk of a system of beliefs that someone holds to or takes as their very own. So you have the Christian faith, and you have the Muslim faith, and you have the Hindu faith, and you have the atheists with their faith as well, although they deny it. And that's very often, of course, how the people use that, that term today, isn't it? Prince Charles, for instance, uh, has said that he wants to be defender of faith not defender of the faith, if he becomes king. Or, faith, when it is not used like that, is often referred to as a personal belief uh, that people have about something religious. It's a subjective feeling or an emotional response. But of course, what is assumed behind that is that that person is taking something to be true for the individual in question, But that something can't be proven scientifically. It's not verifiable. There's no evidence. 
This, of course, was the world of Bertrand Russell, the great atheist professor, who said this, where there is evidence, no one speaks of faith. We do not speak of faith that two and two, we do not speak of faith that two and two are four, or that the earth is round. We only speak of faith when we wish to substitute emotion for evidence. And I'm sure Richard Dawkins and his myriad of disciples would say a very hearty amen to all that. But the word faith then today is, is actually rarely used in our culture to mean what it actually means. For most people, most people today, when they talk about knowing something to be true, the, the knowing bit is always given in terms of, of a scientific understanding. It's measurable. There's evidence to back it up. When I know something, it means I know it scientifically, empirically. Or if someone holds that something, they believe something to be true, that is, it's beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, people say that they believe it to be true. Maybe can't know it in the scientific sense, but it's still reasonable to believe it. And then, of course, in our culture, if it is totally unverifiable scientifically, if there's no evidence at all to back it up, if it's a complete fairy tale, if it's wishful thinking, if it's not true at all, if it's not true in reality, then, of course, people have faith in it. Faith, of course, is reduced to a personal wish that something is actually true when in reality it's not. And those are the general ways in which faith is understood outside the church today in the culture that we live in. But of course, that's not the way the Bible uses the word faith. For the Greek word that we translate faith or believe, remember, faith doesn't have a verb form, so I can't say I faith in God. I, I have faith in God. I can't say I faith in God. I believe in God. It doesn't have a verb form, so we say I believe or I trust rather than I faith. The word, of course, simply means that. It means to trust. It means trustworthiness. So to have faith is to trust in something or someone, like we're talking to the boys and girls. You have faith when you sit on your chair, that it will hold your weight, keep you upright. It's not some sort of religious experience or emotional feeling to have faith. Did you have a religious experience when you sat down on your chair? Maybe you did. Of course not. You simply trust. You trust that your chair will hold your weight. You have faith in it. You trust it. And that's what the word really means. And that's how Paul uses it here in Romans. Now, let's take a wee bit of a backtrack. Last time, remember, we'd seen that humanity was lost. Lost in sinfulness. Lost without any hope of salvation. There was only going to be judgment. There was going to, going to be hell. But God revealed a righteousness. That is a legal status that allowed us to be right with God through faith in Jesus. And this was done, of course, this happens through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as he took our punishment and he made atonement for our sins. So God could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's what we saw the last time. And now Paul moves further in his argument. And he wants to show, again, that God has always worked 
from the very beginning, he has always dealt with his people in this way. This is not something new. This is not something novel that Paul has just made up. This teaching about justification by faith. For Abraham knew it. David, King David, knew it. Indeed, everyone who believes is justified by faith alone. So, three essential points to break up the passage. First, we want to look at the law and faith and that just at the end of chapter 3. Then we're going to look at Abraham's experience of justification. And then we'll look at Abraham's faith and our faith. So in chapter 3, verses 27 to 31, Paul here is still addressing those moralistic Jews. He's been showing them, remember, that the law, the law that the Jews had, the law of Moses, that they boasted about having, which they thought gave them access to God, in fact, left them condemned before him. For it was impossible to keep it perfectly, as God required. Then after showing that how God makes us right with him by faith in Jesus, he draws the obvious conclusion. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Paul points out that the Jews can no longer consider themselves superior to anyone, for it's not that they're so good and everyone else is so bad, rather that everyone's bad and everyone is made righteous by faith. Therefore, there's nobody better than anybody else in the church. The Jews who had the law and the Gentiles who did not were all made righteous by the same method, through faith in what God has done in the death of Jesus. There's no hierarchy of privilege when we're made right with God by faith. It's not about our abilities to be good. Rather, it's all about God and what he has done. So nobody can brag and nobody can boast that they're better than anybody else. It's an even playing field. For, as he goes on, if there's one God, uh, which the Jews, of course, understood, if righteousness can only come through the law, through keeping the law, then it would only belong to the Jews because they were the ones who had it. However, Paul points out that God is the God of Jews and Gentiles. He is the God of the whole world. Therefore, God justifies both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, in the same way. That is by faith alone. Paul is showing that the Jews' special status is not what they thought it was. And that God justifies not by works of the law or by having the law or by anything else. But God makes people right with himself. By faith. But in verse 31, Paul anticipates a Jewish objection. If it's all of faith, then, Paul, is the law useless? Is it null and void? Do we throw it out as we scrap it? No, says Paul, rather we uphold the law. Now, the way Paul uses law in Romans is that. A PhD in itself, I guess. Um, because he goes through, we, we, he uses law in many different senses. Law could be the Ten Commandments. Law could be the books of Moses. Law can be the entire Old Testament. And when he uses law here, when he talks about upholding the law, he means we uphold the Old Testament, what it teaches. And see, Paul wants and he needs to show the Jews that the law, 
the Old Testament teaches justification by faith alone. For if God justifies by faith alone apart from works of the law, then surely the Old Testament shows this. Because God never changes. God works the same way all the time. So it has to show it. So Paul, in order to prove this, now turns. And he turns to the hero figure of the Jewish nation. He turns to the father figure of the Jewish nation, Abraham. And how he was made right with God. Jews, of course, are very well, very well aware that Abraham was their father. They boasted about it often. He was the first one and they were all his descendants. So if you wanted to be part of God's promises to Abraham... Promises, of course, of Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Then you had to be a Jew. That is, you had to have direct physical descent from Abraham. So you had to come through the tribes of Israel and be part of the tribes and so on right down to your present day. That was what made you a Jew. But what Paul now shows them is that Abraham's faith was not based on works as they thought, but rather he was justified by faith. So the promise to Abraham, the promise that God gave to Abraham and his descendants is not about physical descent, but rather comes through faith, the same faith as Abraham had. So we're on our second point. How was Abraham justified? How was he made righteous? Well, as Paul points out, if he was justified by works, please follow along in this because we're going to take a very quick sweep through this. Um, If he was justified by works, that is by keeping the law, keeping the Ten Commandments, then he would have had something to boast about, but not before God. Paul then appeals to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he quotes it. What does the scripture say, he says, about Abraham? And he tells us, Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember the story. He was Abram at that time. Uh, God told Abraham that he would make him a great nation. But Abram didn't have any children. Isaac hadn't come along yet. And God made him promises, of course, that he would have a son and that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the night sky and the sands on the seashore. Then Abraham believed that promise. He believed God and God credited. That is, he granted it. Or in AV language, he imputed to him righteousness. That is, he gave him a righteous status before him. He made him right with God. So Abraham, the father of the entire entire Jewish nation, was not made righteous before God because he kept the law, or because he worked for it, or because he was a good and moral and upright person, but because he had faith in God. And so Paul illustrates this idea with uh, wages and gifts. When you work for your wage packet at the end of the month or at the end of the week or whenever you get it, you don't turn around to your boss and say, thank you very much for giving me the gift of my wages. Rather, you expect to get them because you earn them. And if your boss doesn't pay you, take him to court so that he will pay you because he is obliged to give them to you for the work that you have done. But if you don't work, and you receive a gift, then you're profoundly thankful, aren't you? You, don't, you didn't earn it. It was just freely given to you. You can't take someone to court because they didn't give you a gift. 
for they're under no obligation to, to give it to you. So it is with those who trust in God who justifies sinners. They receive the gift of righteousness and it comes by faith. So Abraham was justified by faith. He did not work for it or earn it. God gave it to him. He credited to his account his righteousness. And so he became righteous before God. And that, if that wasn't enough to persuade the Jews, it wasn't only Abraham, but David knew the same things. And so he quotes David in Psalm 32, which we sang earlier. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord does not or will not uh, hold against him. He quotes Psalm 30. David, uh, Paul quotes Psalm 32, which is David, that forgiveness comes not by works of the law, but by, rather by a gift of God, by his grace. It doesn't, he doesn't count men's sins against him. You see, in the psalm, David is assuming that he is a sinner and that he needs God's mercy. And that only comes when God forgives and covers that sin and doesn't hold us to account for it. It happens by grace. It happens by a gift. Not because David was righteous, not because David earned it, not because David was worthy, but because God gives it as a gift. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us righteousness. So Paul has showed the Jews in the church that justification is by faith, not by works of the law. Both Abraham and David knew and understood this. So Paul is upholding the Old Testament, the law, and showing that God has always, from the very beginning, from the very start, as he called Abraham, worked this same way. He has not made people righteous because they were good, but rather because they had faith. And this is the way that God continues to work. From the very beginning this, with his people, he made them right, not by keeping the law, not by being morally upright, but through faith in God and what he has promised to do. And as you sit here, if you're a Christian, you are made right with God, because you have faith, not for any other reason. You are made righteous, you are justified by faith alone, not by anything else. For as Paul has explained in chapter 3, God by his grace provides us with a righteousness. He imputes us to us, this righteousness, through the death of Christ. Where we, he, he took our sin on himself and suffered the, the just penalty for it. And we receive in exchange his perfect righteousness. This righteousness that God is gifting to us. And no amount of good living or religious actions or service in church or baptism or communion or Bible reading will ever make you right with God. The only way God has provided for us to stand before him as not guilty to be rescued from his wrath, to be saved from his judgment, is by faith alone. Now, there are several other things that Paul needs to hammer out. And he continues. He has, if this is the case then for Paul, as he's been arguing, if God justifies by faith, is the promise that God gave to Abraham then still only for the Jews? How do the Gentiles, that is you and me, everybody who's not a Jew, how do, how do we fit into all this? God has made these promises to Abraham, 
But do we fit into the equation at all? Or is this justification by faith only for Jewish people, the followers of Abraham? So Paul now turns again to the topic of circumcision. In verse 9, he asks another question. Is the blessedness only for the circumcised, that is for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, the non-Jews? And of course, this blessedness is the having our sins forgiven from the quote of Psalm 32. You see, Paul wants to point out to the Jews that Abraham being circumcised was not a requirement of his justification, was not a requirement of him receiving his right, that righteousness. For if we remember back uh, to the accounts in Genesis, we find that God, Abraham was credited with righteousness in chapter 15, and then he was circumcised in chapter 17. So that means there was a gap, a gap of some 13 years from when Abraham was justified that is, made righteous, and from when, when he was circumcised. Therefore, Abraham was justified by faith when he was actually still a Gentile, a non-Jew. So, implication is, circumcision has nothing to do with justification. It's not a requirement of our justification. Rather, it is a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham already had. By faith. This then means, of course, that Abraham is the father not just of the circumcised, not just of the Jews, but rather of everyone, everyone who has that same faith as Abraham did. What counts as not being circumcised or not being circumcised, as the case may be? What counts as faith, the same faith that Abraham had? And further, it's not then the sign of circumcision that makes somebody a child of Abraham. Rather, it's having the same faith as Abraham that counts. Thus, we may deduce from this that if a Jew, that is someone who is circumcised, does not have faith like Abraham, then he is not a child of Abraham. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees. Again, let us not underestimate how revolutionary this was to the first hearers. Paul is redefining what a Jew is. After all their history and all that they'd been taught, he is turning it on its head. Showing that within this church in Rome, as it stood there, as Paul was writing to them, where there were Gentile believers and where there were Jewish believers, there was perfect equality. The Jews were not superior to the Gentiles or vice versa. Rather, each was in the same way under God's wrath, and each was justified by the same faith, just like Abraham, the man of faith. And so any possible animosity that there was between the two factions was uncalled for. What you have here is one church. With Abraham as the founder, the first, and all who believe as he did are his children. Physical descent is not what counts, but faith in God. And in verse 13, Paul then begins to spell out the implications of all this. For if Abraham is the father of all who believe, as he did, then if that's the case, what or rather how do these people then inherit the promises that God made to Abraham? For again, remember, the Jews saw themselves as being ex exclusively the ones who received all the blessings from those promises that God had made to Abraham way back in Genesis. So are those promises only for the Jews? 
How do the Gentile believers then inherit these promises as well? How do they become part of them? Now this is where it gets a little bit complicated and we need some knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, But we're going to take a a quick sweep through this. um, So we're not going to dwell on the details too much. Paul here, of course, is referring to what is said in the, the promises of Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. Uh, and he talks of it here. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promises, or the promise, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and so on. The promise... Uh, that Abraham would be heir of the world is of course referring to the promise that through Abraham all the peoples of the world would be blessed. That's what God told him in Genesis chapter 12. Through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Indeed the promise does not just refer to the Jews but to all peoples. It goes far wider than the Jews expected. The expectation that the Jews had was that when the Messiah would come as all this developed through the years when the Messiah would come he would be a world ruler Uh, and in a sense that was accurate the promises that God gave to Abraham when he took him up on the mountain and said look to the east look to the west look to the south look to the north everything you can see I will give you of course originally was referring to the land of Canaan but that promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in the whole world The promise was not limited to ethnic Jews, but rather to all who believe as Abraham did. So Abraham was the first of what would become a new humanity, a people called by God, a people whom God had chosen to fulfill what Adam and Eve were originally meant to for the world. Abraham would be the father of a new people. And of course, this is the the vision. This is what is ultimately fulfilled as John speaks of it in Revelation. The end chapters of Revelation where we have a new heavens and a new earth. Everything in Genesis is pointing and directing us towards that via the cross. And of course, in this new heavens and new earth, God will dwell with his people. And the original plan for humanity given in Genesis 1 that we would have dominion over the whole world that will be fulfilled finally and completely. The vision that Paul speaks of was bigger than the Jews imagined it to be. They looked, the Jews looked for an earthly Jewish kingdom that would expand over the whole world where the Jews and and the Messiah would reign. But rather Christ, when he came, came for a kingdom, yes, but not to rescue a Jewish nation but for a kingdom that would go over the whole world, a kingdom which he himself would reign over. The Jews wanted an earthly Jewish kingdom. Christ came not to rescue a nation, but for the world. So the Gentiles then, if that is the case, inherit the promises of Abraham as well. We are part of them. If you're not a Jew, if you're a Gentile, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of that promise. And it doesn't come by keeping the law. It comes by faith. Or in other words, who receives the benefit of these promises given to Abraham? Is it those who keep the law or those who have faith? Well, if it comes by the law, 
then we have a problem, as Paul points out, because the law only brings wrath. That's what he's been arguing. That's what he's been saying. Nobody can keep the law. So if that's the case, then nobody inherits the promises. Not the Jews, not the Gentiles, not anybody. And furthermore, if that is the case, then God would be fundamentally dishonest because he could not keep his promise because nobody can keep the law. Therefore, this blessing that he has promised will not happen. Faith will be of no value, as Paul points out. But the promise uh, will be of no value if the promise comes by law. But rather, Abraham and his descendants receive this promise, become part of this promise, not by law, not by keeping the law, but through faith, through the righteousness that comes by faith. We become part of that promise in Jesus Christ as we have faith in him. You and me, as we sit here today, are part of that promise. If you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are part of that promise by the righteousness that comes through faith. The the descendants or offspring here are not just referring to ethnic Jews, but people from every language, every tribe, every nation who have faith in God, the same faith as Abraham did. Therefore, the promise comes to those who have faith so that it may be by grace. It may be a gift and come to all Abraham's offspring, all his descendants, all that worldwide church. Verse 16. So Abraham is the father of one church, Jews and Gentiles together, inheriting the promises of God together by grace alone, God's unmerited favor to us. We don't deserve this. Through faith alone, not by works of the law, not by being good, not by law or circumcision or anything else. You become God's people, part of the children of Abraham, not through good deeds, keeping the Ten Commandments, religiosity, but by faith alone, by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in the God who has given us his son to die for us, so that we would be free from condemnation, part of that promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Like Abraham, like David, like all Old Testament believers, and like all New Testament believers, and like all believers at any time, we stand before a holy God, not with our works to boast about, not with our moral goodness, but with the righteousness that comes by faith alone. And finally, let's then look at Abraham's faith in ours. For Paul has never actually defined for us here just what faith is. How did Abraham have faith in God? What did that look like? Was it just wishful thinking or a a religious experience? Was it not based on anything concrete or anything sure? Of course not. For Abraham's faith was not directed towards himself. It was not directed towards an experience he had. Rather, his faith was directed towards God and was based on the fact of who God is. God is trustworthy. God is unchanging. Abraham's trust in God was based on God's trustworthiness and his power. Verse 17, very important verse. He, that is Abraham, is the father 
is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. You see, Abraham knew that God was powerful enough to give life to the dead, to create things out of nothing, to call things into existence which do not exist, as the ESV translation puts it. So if God can do that, then it's perfectly logical to trust him. If God can create out of nothing, do you think God can give a child to someone who's over 100 years old? If God can give life to the dead, do you think he can do for Abraham what he says he would? You see, faith is based and directed towards the one we have faith in. It's faith in something. So it's perfectly logical for Abraham to believe in God. But more than this, we know that Abraham had faith that God would keep his promises to him. Even when his eyes, when he looked at his wife and he looked at himself and looked at the current situation he was in, when his eyes told him that it was impossible for God to give him a child since they were both so far over the hill that it humanly wasn't possible, He knew he had faith. Rather, God promised Abraham descendants. He promised him descendants as many as the stars in the sky, that Abraham would be the father of many nations, and Abraham trusted that promise. He believed. He had faith. He trusted that God would keep that promise. Since God was able to create out of nothing, since he was powerful enough to raise the dead, then God was powerful enough to do what he said he would. So faith is trusting in God. What he has promised to do in the face of our weakness and helplessness, knowing we can't help ourselves, faith is taking God at his word. God has said he'll do something, he will do it. It is knowing, believing, and trusting God to do what he has promised to do. So, in verse 20, Abraham did not waver, but was strengthened in his faith as he gave glory to God and had been fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now, we know that Abraham had some dodgy moments, if you remember the stories. After all, that's why Ishmael came along, wasn't it? And the results of that, of course, are still being played out on the world stage today. But notice that God did not hold that against him. Abraham, even with these wobbles and these events, still on the whole trusted God and took him at his word. No matter how weak his faith was, Abraham still had faith. And that's what counted. So faith then is based on the character of God and, and on God's faithfulness to his promises, not on ourselves or anything else, nor should we add, is it faith in faith that we have? My faith doesn't save me. Christ does. As if faith in it itself had some ability to make us right with God. No, faith is merely the way we take hold of the promises of God and hold on to them. Faith requires an object. Like I illustrated with Steve, try sitting down on your faith to see how well you do. Silly nonsense, isn't it? You have faith in the chair. Because it will hold your weight, not faith and faith itself. And so as Abraham turned the open hand of faith to God, 
trusting him to do what he said he would do, even when to Abraham's eyes it seemed impossible, God credited credited it to him as righteousness. But, as Paul points out, those words, those words that was credited to him were not written for Abraham alone, but they were written for us as well. Also for us. As Abraham was credited with righteousness, so we too will be credited with righteousness if we have faith in him who raised Christ from the dead. You see, here's the major lesson again. That we are made righteous by faith alone in what God has done for us in Christ. In his death for our sins, paying the penalty, and in his resurrection from the grave, that is where we are justified. Abraham trusted God and his promises to him, so we trust God and his promises to us in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of his grace. And so we experience his credit. We receive that righteousness that comes by faith alone, not by works of the law. Now, maybe I have labored this point today. Probably have. But I'm not going to apologize for For this is the single greatest and most important thing that you will ever know. That you are made right with God through what God has done for us. Not what we do. That every day of our lives we need to rest and trust in Christ and in him alone. For my friends you will always, always be tempted to go back to that old way of thinking. That you can earn your own salvation. The default setting of human beings in our sinful humanity is to want to earn our righteousness ourselves. So we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel again and again and again and again and again and again. And when we think we've got it, we need to remind ourselves of it again because we obviously haven't. And again. It is by grace, through faith in Christ and what he has done, that we are made right with God and nothing else. So I began with a question. Let me end with a question. Not this time, what is faith? But rather, what is your faith in? Is your faith in your own efforts? In your works? In your abilities? Is your faith in religion? Rituals and robes, bells and smells, candles and sacred spaces, archbishops, anti-bishops, whatever they are, mediators, spirits, religion, hocus-pocus. What is your faith in? Is it in your Bible reading? Is it in because you pray six hours a day? Is it because you do some great stuff in the church? Is your faith in that? Or is it in Christ? Is it in the God-man who died for you? The God-man who died so that you could experience God's credit, God's righteousness. That righteousness that comes only by faith alone in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed in the gospel your righteousness, that righteousness that is imputed to us by faith alone. 
not by works of the law, not by any amount of religious things, not by us being good or by us earning it, but simply by us trusting in Christ and his sufficient sacrifice for us. Help us, Lord, as we live our daily lives by each moment to trust in that righteousness, to trust in Christ and what he has done for us, not in what we can do for you or in our own moral goodness, but always to look with the eyes of faith to Jesus, to the cross where you have purchased our redemption, where you have made us right with you, where you have credited us with righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.